And from the outset, I, I set a goal to lock myself in a room for a few hours every day, six days a week. And I, I thrived on that. I absolutely loved it. I'm Diana O'Connor. Welcome to the Dingle Lit Podcast. Diagwit agus fóta dan podcrail fela litrhe cuirfeguina. Each year at the end of November, Dingle Lit Book Festival brings together a unique weekend program of events in English and Osgoelga on the Dingle Peninsula. Singer-songwriter Declan O'Rourke is no stranger to an audience. But having spent lockdown penning his debut novel, we were delighted to welcome him to the stage for his literary festival debut. His book, The Pawnbroker's Reward, is a weighty work of historical fiction based around the Great Famine as it happened in McCroom. Mixing historically accurate detail with his imagining of the human side of the story, the book is incredibly evocative from the very first page. So before we began our discussion, I asked Declan to bring us into it with him and read from the opening chapter. A wheeze was followed by a gasping suck for air. With legs trembling, he felt himself lurch forward and stumble. Recovering, gasping again in pitch black emptiness, an arm reached out, blind, grabbing at the air but found nothing. Every sinew and every fibre of his body burned from the ground up. Each step was now a gargantuan effort. The cold and damp air of the night, blowing infrequently, was the only balm to the fire in his skin. Exhausted, his mind teetering on the edge of consciousness, heart bursting under the strain, each part of him had pushed the limits of endurance and might give way at any moment. A raging fever was consuming him. The choked pulse throbbed in his ears, the wheezing of his lungs, his tongue panting like a spent horse, the intermittent coughs and groans from within. Blood and vomit stained the taste of his cut mouth. One at a time, the effort to lift each foot up and over the grass tussocks, the strain of his eyes to perceive the ground in absolute darkness, an overwhelming urge to lie down, his body begged for rest. But he could sense the hill. It was just before him somewhere. He tried to focus on that, not the pain. But how? To climb it seemed impossible. If he stopped now, he would never get there. Oblivious as a fallen roof leaning on him to the unbearable burden, a dead weight pressed into his back. Somewhere in the depths of a dream, a voice chanted, Guran Nagapal, Dira Lee the mirthful laughter of a little girl. Sheila, he called out. So I think what, what struck me so strongly when you start reading the book is it brings you right into what people are experiencing at that time. And even though when we're in school in Ireland growing up, even if you're not good at history, I don't think there's a person that doesn't know the dates of the famine. And I actually had to go back and look at the back of the book and kind of double check it, it is 1846, because what really struck me with the book was how I was kind of doing the maths in my head going, that's like my grandmother's grandmother was alive in this time, and you've made it so real to me, and it's so shocking when you read about their lives that they were living, and this is all based on real people who existed, which I think we'll discuss in a little bit for, in a moment, 
that, you know, the rate of change in our country has been exponential since the famine, socially, economically, all of that. And you, it's like getting into a time machine and going right back there. And it is truly shocking, the squalor, the poverty, the pain, and you bring it to life so vividly that um, it, it's really impressive. But I want to ask you what brought you to this, how you, you went into this journey and how that topic was the one that, the road that you went down? So about 21 years ago, um, I, my mother and some of her siblings were doing some family research and uh, looking into, my granddad from Canberra had a bit of a mysterious past, we'd say, and they, you know, they just wanted to find out more about his background. Mm -hmm. His birth search showed that he'd been born in the workhouse. Um, Nobody knew what that meant. It was, you know, we were all intrigued by it. Um, the word was kind of familiar, but there was no sense of, you know, what it meant. Or I, I certainly didn't know it was anything to do with the famine. And, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, I just set myself a little goal. I think we all did to find out a bit more about what that meant. Uh, but within a few short months, I stumbled upon a book in Eason's in O'Connell Street, and it just jumped out at me. The workhouses of Ireland, I mean, um, I couldn't have, you know, it just really, it was, uh, you can call it coincidence or whatever. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I opened the first page of that on the bus on the way home from town that evening, and literally second or third paragraph down told the story of the Obukla family in just a few lines. And, uh, you know, it was it was the beginning of something. My my introduction not only to that period of history because I don't remember anything except it being mentioned in school. Mm. Really, I didn't have any specific memories of what I learned about it. Um, but this really did. It brought it to life for me. In a few lines, I was there. Mm -hmm. You know, the the man talked about, and it was a personal account by Padre Lira, who was. Uh, a Gaelic language revival priest and writer in, in the 18, well, sorry, in the early 1900s, but he was a neighbor of the Abukla family. And he talked about, you know, so really I found out a little more when I went through the book. They were a very young family, <clears throat> two young children, and, you know, basically when all of their options had been exhausted, they went to the, the poorhouse in McCroom. And within a, a week or two, a very short amount of time, the two children had died. They'd all been separated. And um, the wife then was gravely ill. There was some communication through Irish, and they got word to each other that the children had died. And they left the place. She was, she was gravely ill, as I said, and she, she couldn't get too far. He had to begin to carry her on his back, and there were... Obviously, people who saw that, he carried her for some miles on his back, back to their little bohan up on, on, on a hill. And um, they were both found dead the next morning. And he was kneeling with uh, his wife's feet held to his chest, is what the neighbor said, as if he'd been trying to warm them. I just thought it was the most profound image yeah. and um, so powerful. 
it still rocks me every time. I, yeah. I find it very hard to say it even out loud. But I think, and I spent years trying to, uh, because of, first of all, I, I wanted to know why we didn't know this story. Why didn't mm -hmm. everybody know that story? And um, I thought, who could read that anywhere and not be moved by it? And, and as a young songwriter, the instinct to share it was instant as well, you know. So, and that led to a series of songs. But and just before <clears> you continue with that, that that journey carrying his wife on his back is what Declan just read to you there with the opening of the book. So that's Podrig carrying Court back home to die, essentially. And I think it's no spoiler to tell you that a lot of people will die in this book. We're, we're, <laughs> that's a spoiler alert. It was the famine. Um, Not as many yeah. as you might think, actually. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, very many of the people in the book were real people, and it is historically very accurate, it's fair to say. As much With, as I could yeah. uh, make it be, yeah. I suppose, yeah. So you actually, in sharing the story first, you had an album in 2017 called Chronicles of the Great Irish Famine. So this was where that led you to first, before writing this story. Yeah. Um, I read a lot of books over the years. I mean, that that very first introduction, I don't think I could have got a better one because, you know, with the greatest respect to so many of the writers of the books that I read later on it, you come across so much information that is kind of academic in nature and it's, it's, it's information on mm -hmm. legislation and you get a lot of stuff recycled and... Some of it sounds almost mythical, the accounts. Um, I, I think I was very lucky to, to have hit that one first because it did humanize it so much and it set the bar for me then to find other accounts that were as clear as that. Um, um, but I, I kind of was really, I suppose, kind of exhaustive. But over a long period of time, I just read lots and lots and lots of books about it. And uh, it eventually, I was, I was willing to take my time with it and write a collection of songs. Ultimately, that led to about an hour's worth of material. Um, and after I finished, I thought, I, was, I thought that was it. Mm -hmm. I, I was happy to just say, that's yeah. that subject. Um, and, uh, but I played a concert in Skibbereen a few months after. And somebody came up to talk to me afterwards, and he said his father was from about a mile from where the Obukla family lived. And we got talking about the town land lames and things mm -hmm. like that. And one thing led to another, and a couple of days later, I ended up being taken to see the remains of their cottage, which was, mm -hmm. you know, fascinating to me. Well, for a start, I couldn't have imagined after all that time talking and singing about it and trying to find out. Mm. I'd written to libraries and archives and everything, trying to find out if there was anything. Just dead ends everywhere. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, I, I had a, a direct link and I was taken to, it was like ground zero, if you like. And mm. To stand at the spot where this happened, um, and it was such a tiny, pathetic little footprint of a house up on this bleak hill exposed to the elements for miles around you know and the man who who uh whose land it is now 
his family have been there for generations. He said it was, it had just recently been exposed by a gorse fire. And, um, but he said, he said, I remember he said that if you stood up here in the wind, it would skin you alive, you know. Yeah. And, and the amount of kind of information, tangible information or sensory information I even got in those moments standing mm. up there just made me walk away saying, this story is not finished with me, even though I thought I was finished with it. Yeah. And, um, and it set me on this journey, you know. That's amazing that, that you, by chance, ran into that person. And it, see, it does seem like the story was chasing you. It was, it was asking to be told. It was, because around the same time, I was approached by the publishers of Gill, who'd heard me talking about the record yeah. on the radio. And they said, do you think you'd like to expand it into book form? And, you know, the timing of those things. And the third element was that I'd, I'd never been interested in writing prose. And it had never been something that I, I aspired to before. People had suggested it to me along the way, a couple yeah. of people. Shay Healy, for example, said, you should be writing prose, you know. Um, but uh, it, the other th element was that I woke up one morning to write a song. Uh, about an old woman who lived across the street when we were kids and we used to hide from her because she keeps sending you back to the shops. And <laughs> we all had one of them, I think, you know. Yeah. But, uh, and I woke up thinking, thinking about her and saying, oh, what I wouldn't give to spend an hour in her company now. And I started trying to write a song for her. I had the whole day to myself and it turned into a 20-page short story, which I'd never done before and I really enjoyed that. So if that hadn't happened, I probably would have said, I don't think it's for me, you know. But I enjoyed it so much, I, I, I knew it was the sign or the door opening, you know. Yeah, because I suppose the process is quite different from writing a song to writing especially a book of this, of this volume and magnitude. How did you find, when you got into it, did you ever hit that wall where you went, oh my God, what have I got myself into? Can I, fin can I finish this? No. no? I actually didn't want it to end. Really? Yeah, I, I was. Uh, yes, it is different to writing songs, but in so many ways it's similar. Mm -hmm. You know, I could joke and say it's like a very, very long song. I'm not known for my short, little, snappy, poppy numbers anyway. But um, certain disciplines about writing, I think, were exactly the same. And I think I had developed maybe a confidence or a. Mm -hmm a trust of your own instinct over years that yeah. I maybe even took for granted. But when it came to doing this, I knew from the start that the, the big difference, the defining difference was that I knew I'd have to sit down and put myself in a place at a desk and, mm -hmm. and that you can't approach something of this magnitude with distractions and a little bit kind of paper mache, you know, it's, it's got to be more um, focused and dedicated, you know. You can write songs anywhere on the go, you know, in your head, because they're quite short and you can mm -hmm. remember it. But uh, this, so uh, from the beginning, from the outset, I, I set a goal to lock myself in a room for a few hours every day, six days a week. Um, and I, I thrived on that. I absolutely loved it. I had tried it with songwriting years ago, and, and it scared the living daylights out of me because it's quite different. Yeah. 
Um, but I really loved it. And when, when lockdown kicked in, it was, it was a real gift because I had no other distractions. And I, I upped the pace to seven days a week at that point because I'd had trouble. The only frustration I'd ever had was actually getting the time and being able to find a routine with other work and with a young family. And yeah. So um, lockdown, I did. I went in. I didn't miss a single day in over six months, seven days a week, which my wife was a little bit unhappy about. She started to call it the other woman. <laughs> um, I, think, I think now might be a good point to show the audience your, your T-shirt. Um, yeah, the the okay. merchandise. So. I spent lockdown in 1846. <laughs> <laughs> so. I just got one of those made for me and my editor, you know. <laughs> So the, the solitary... It brings a whole new meaning to uh, been there, wore the T-shirt, actually. Yeah, it certainly does. But the, the solitary writing life, you enjoy <clears throat> that solitude and that focus. I loved it. You know, when we were... I was in the audience for the last mm -hmm. talk with Robert and Catherine, and uh, when Robert was saying that he loved when people weren't allowed to come out to the island. I, I could relate to that. Yeah. I love actually getting home and being home and closing the door and, you know, pottering around the garden or whatever. I'm kind of quite solitary in my yeah. thinking, I think, for somebody who's in what you might perceive as an extrovert profession. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I notice I've seen you on Instagram with your typewriter. Now, did, did any of that book get written on a typewriter or was that just for show? <laughs> that was for show. My brother bought that as a present for me last Christmas, but I wrote it in pencil first. Did you? I wrote it in longhand, the first mm -hmm. run of it. Uh, I did that because, um, again, some, from experience, um, I tried to write some music one time on a computer. Mm -hmm. You know, music notation, composing. And I, f yeah, I found that writing it on the computer just brought me into the complete wrong part of my brain. Yeah. And it was a disaster. I hated it. And everything that came out was bad. And, I, you know, from then on, that was many years ago, I knew to never do that. And you, you write in your head first and then put it down. Um, so I knew with, with, with a pencil or a pen sitting there, if you had to make a decision first, uh, uh, for, at least for my method, I'm sure it's different for everybody, I knew it would be more successful for me, and it was. It was, and it was a romance to that too. Maybe, maybe you wouldn't do it with every book. I don't know, mm -hmm. but I, I really enjoyed doing it that way. Yeah. Um, speaking of romance, I suppose another another character in the book is the narrator. I suppose you call him the narrator, Cornelius Creed, who was the the pawnbroker of the title. And I, when I started reading the book, I almost wasn't sure what I was supposed to think about Cornelius because as a pawnbroker, I'm like. Good. Is he the evil guy? Am I supposed to hate him? And then it's like, he seems nice. Is this a trick? <laughs> but I think he, he seems like a good guy. And you really kind of um, humanise him, I suppose. He almost seems like, you know, th this bit you wanted to read, I think, really shows Cornelius and his wife and their relationship and, you know, the personal side of it. There's, there's so much in this book that is, I suppose, the historical side of it. And there's a lot of, you know, the, the meetings of the, the poor law guardians of the town and all of the very factual historical things that add all that historical meat to it. 
but then the sort of more fictional elements, I suppose, that you've had to imagine and really bring the emotional side of these characters to life, I think is such a beautiful contrast to that, that you can you go from one side to the other very neatly to, to break up the, the historical fact with the human, human side of it. And I think this is a lovely conversation between Cornelius and his wife, if you would like to. Thank you. Yeah, just a, a little background on, on Creed himself, because, um, you know, I, when I began, of course, my, my goal, I suppose, was to find out about the book, the family Podrick and Koch, and how they survived as long mm. as they did. And, and you know, in, in, in trying to find all of this information and reading the newspapers at the time and going into archives, and that, I began to find other people in the area. I mean, they lived about six miles outside of town on the outskirts of McCroom. Um, in the center of town was Cornelius Creed. He was one of the characters who at first started to just appear every once in a while, but he, he became more and more frequent um, as I discovered more of his writings because he was corresponding to the newspapers. And, and was, those correspondences that are reprinted in the book were as they would have appeared, is that right, in the Irish Examiner of the some day? Some of them, his some pieces, them, his, yeah. his, yeah. He was a beautiful writer. He was really intelligent, intellectual kind of person. I actually think he was probably a little bit on the spectrum, even though I'm sure they didn't have that term. Mm -hmm. But he was very high functioning, I think, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, super into detail and but anyway he he began as a source of information for me you know yeah. but slowly began to win me over as somebody who I couldn't leave out you know um, he's not the narrator per se because I don't think it's quite interesting my editor and I had lots of talks about things like that who was talking or but um Really, when it's it's like a it's like a two sided story. I think they begin from the same root. But anyway, um, sorry, I'm. I'm <laughs> but, uh, this is him and his wife Cornelius and his wife are coming home from a, a birthday party. They hadn't far to wander through the streets of Macroom. The O'Reardon's house was down the east end of Castle Street, and it was a straight path west from there to the square for Creed and Palellan. But Creed was in no hurry to end the pleasant feelings of the evening, and the air being so nice to take, they stepped slowly as they went. Gripping his arm as they walked, Paul Ellen began, to tent began a tentative conversation that caught, that caught Creed by surprise. Do you ever wonder, Con? Wonder what, dear? What it would have been like if we'd had a family of our own? Pulled out of the hypnosis he'd been enjoying, Focusing on the rhythm of their feet tramping the cobbles, Creed took a long breath and deliberated on how best to answer. A horse could be, could be heard neighing within the car house adjoining one of the shops further up the opposite side of the street. But in the absence of an answer, perhaps afraid of the silence, Paul Ellen sought to clarify and elaborate. I know it's beyond our understanding, and I don't regret anything. I know we have a comfortable life. I just, hearing Pat saying those lovely things to the children, like, you have to be up for mass in the morning, 
or seeing the joy on Mary's face when the girls carried in the trays, you know. Sometimes I just wish we could have had some of that. Creed listened calmly, still open to an answer that might come to him, but in just as little of a hurry to force such an answer as their feet ambling over the darkened stones were to reach home. Surely she knew how he felt. She could not have forgotten. They had talked about this years before. It wasn't that he did not want children, and although he didn't long for them like she did, it wasn't something they had any control over. Had she seen the longing in his face as he watched the O'Reardons, coveting their closeness and affections, how he'd looked at Mary when he talked to her, the faint residual feelings of the boy within him, remnants of the still raw but innocent history that he and Mary quietly shared since childhood days. He in love with his school friend's sister. Mary likely did not even remember, but it wasn't anything Pal needed to concern herself about. It was just a layer of paint buried under the many layers of paint that covered the walls of his memory, like the sign above his shop that, through its own lifetime, had been painted over and painted over with names, titles, fresh colours and new lettering, the old never to be seen again, but each still supporting the layer above them all the way to its present incarnation. Powell did not need to know about that. He couldn't remember if he'd ever told her about his former feelings, but perhaps she sensed it, or something like it. Either way, he was confused. Logic told him there was no enduring problem in his and Pal Ellen's relations. Heart had no bearing on the reality. It was neither feelings nor wishes that governed the, governed the fact of their being a childless family. But Creed, as her husband instinctively knew, he must strive to understand regardless. It was the least he could do. He felt for his wife that she was still suffering in this way. It was clear now that she must have been carrying these thoughts all along. Of course, dear, I wonder too. Perhaps not as often. It might be different for a woman who would long to be a mother. The instinct to nurture is... But he had no idea. He heard himself attempt an offering but he could never know the lingering lack of fulfilment, the feeling of something missing that a woman has who so desperately wants to have a family, but who for some reason known only to her maker is not given to be a mother, despite her ever kind and nurturing nature, her endless supply of love to give to a child, the will and prayers of a saint for God to answer until one day she knows it will never happen. He did know that for those reasons, while Ellen was always the subject of a quiet pity among her female friends and her sister. But perhaps saddest of all, she pitied herself. She soldiered on because she had no choice but to. But life had put a stone in her shoe that gave her a limp. Creed was not always on the list of those who pitied her. Only at times like this when she spilled over and it became obvious. Perhaps he was too busy with his business his writing and the meetings to appreciate the depth of her sadness. On the other hand, a sustained sense of pity was not conducive to a marriage of equals. Creed did like children, quite a bit even. 
He was often surprised at how well he could relate to them, especially bright children. He had been genuine and sincere in his praise of Kate that evening, of all the O'Reardon children, and of Charlotte. And he was as genuine and true to his feelings when, nearing home that night, he told Pal Ellen, I would like to have had children, Pal, and especially because I know how much you would have loved them. A child's light is the light of the world, to be held up high for all the world to see by it. But it wasn't fated for us to have a family of our own. I know, she answered softly. Somehow it shortened the distance between them. I suppose an interesting thing in this book is there are different classes of people in it. So you've had to deal with a lot of different voices. The, you know, mm -hmm. the poor who probably would have been speaking Irish mostly, but you're writing them through English. Then you have the, the sort of middle class and then upper classes again who mostly come into it in the, the public meetings that are going on. How did you find writing all those different voices and going from one level to the next? And did they, did they stay in your head for a long time afterwards? It was very exciting uh, as, you know, a writer, I suppose, trying to give them their voice and to follow their voice um, and to watch them develop. Some of them you hear clear, more clearly than others and some of them reveal themselves to you slowly. Um, so it was, I felt honoured in, in many ways to to be telling this story. I felt uh, a great responsibility to do it well. And by the end of it, you know, you care for the people so much. It was, you know, it's, it's very hard to describe how much I, I, I feel for them now. Yeah. Because they are people that you really feel like you know. And they were real. and. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I feel like they are alive again in a way. You know, they're people who have yeah. come out of, for me alone even, come out of nothing and, and you're all of a sudden aware of their, their existence and their, the tiniest details of their lives. And it's both exciting and uh, moving and uh, really, really enjoyable to work with. It, it, um, it gave me great motivation to go into the room every day. I loved it, and there was never, there was never a single moment that I felt it was difficult. I really enjoyed it. I didn't want it to end, really. And going back to your... It ends in 1846. Is there room for a sequel in 1847, maybe? Well, yeah, you know, that goes right back to your first comment about it being big, and, and, and some people have said that. You know, it was very difficult to keep the lid on because mm -hmm. it, is, it is such a vast subject, I think, you know, for, and, and as somebody who's read so much about it, I think this, peri this period of our history mm. has been begging for a long time. It wants, it, it deserves a war and peace. It deserves a Schindler's List or a Schindler's Ark. It deserves to be a much bigger book, even, you yeah. know. Um, it was very hard to, uh, I, I, my goalposts after circling the, the pocket, if you like, for a while, ended up being the second half of 1846 alone in there. You know, we know the mm -hmm. famine lasted years, so. Yeah. Um, 
it is the tip of the iceberg. It is the tip of the iceberg, and I'm, I'm quite proud that it's big because it deserves to be. And uh, I think there is, I will be going back in. Yeah. I think. <laughs> you've definitely caught the writing bug. Do you think, have, you'll, go, have, do you think yeah. you'll go back into the famine or somewhere else? Have you started? I haven't started another one yet, but um, I know where I'm going. That was Declan O'Rourke in conversation with me, Deanna O'Connor, as part of the Dingle Lit Book Festival in November 2021. You've been listening to the Dingle Lit Podcast. If you want to hear more, follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch the interview online, look for Dingle Lit on YouTube, or go to dinglelit.ie for more information on upcoming events. Thanks for listening.